Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. There's been a lot of discussion recently and one of the hottest topics in higher education is coming back to campus, reopening. And if you wanted to, you wouldn't have to go very far to find new commentary, new variations, new strategic plans, masked as old strategic plans, revented as new ideas, and of course the very ever popular term of high flex and how presidents and faculties are describing their return to campus ideations. My guest today is Kevin McClure, who, much like me, has been obsessing over this, his term, not mine, and wrote a terrific article for EdSurge about these very committees that have been going on. And the article's called College Leaders Must Explain Why and Not Just How to Return to Campus. Kevin wrote, you might say that my interest has bordered on the obsessive. As a professor and scholar of higher education management, leadership and finance, I've read nearly everything about colleges and the pandemic that's crossed my screen. I even went so far as to analyze the committees tasked with developing plans to see who is on them, and more importantly, who is missing. Given all the talk of plans being informed by medical experts and aligned with public health guidelines, I was surprised to see how few people with public health and medical expertise are actually on these committees. And so I decided to invite him to join us today on the podcast to talk with him about this very astute observation. Dr. Kevin McClure is an Associate Professor of Higher Education at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He earned his PhD from the University of Maryland. And while at Maryland, he held various professional positions in academic affairs and international programs. He's an expert in higher education finance, administration, and management. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you've obviously been zeroed on this. Tell me what you were thinking as you began to compile this research about return to campus plans. Well, I mean, some of it was motivated by self-interest. Uh, being someone that works on a college campus, I was curious to see uh, what other institutions were doing and what it might mean for uh, my own return to campus or possible return to campus. Uh, but beyond that, I also, of course, took an academic interest in uh, trying to understand how colleges were approaching what, in my view, was pretty clearly a, a management problem uh, and what type of solutions they were coming up with um, as someone that, that uh, has served on multiple committees and task forces uh, and been involved with, you know, technology rollouts in higher education. I saw very early on that COVID-19 was going to present what was perhaps um, the most acute logistical and coordination challenge that a higher education institution has ever confronted before. Uh, and so um, I knew the, the scope and depth of the problem that institutions were facing. And what that meant for many of these committee and task forces is I knew what type of work that they were trying to accomplish and trying to accomplish through, in many cases, large committees. Uh, and so I wanted to try to figure out how it was that they were tackling this, uh, what kind of ideas that they were coming up with. And, and what was really important for me is I, I wanted to know more about what type of expertise and data and evidence um, were informing the decisions that they were arriving at. So you noted that there was a wide range of reasons that presidents gave publicly after they made their decision about their announcements of returning to campus. Can you review some of those? 
Sure. Well, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me and one of my big reasons for writing the article is that in many instances, there was no reason provided at all. Um, and what I saw was a lot of explanation of what the campus was going to do, how they planned on bringing people back, um, but very little at all about this is why we have come to this decision. Why is it important for us as an institution to bring people back to campus right now? Um, and, and I think answering that why question is really important um, because um, students and faculty and staff and parents and community members, I think, deserve a full account, a full explanation of why something that carries a great deal of risk is necessary. Um, so that was kind of the starting point is that there weren't very many rationales at all. Um, so I had to rely on largely some of the explanations that were provided by presidents who have written opinion pieces explaining their, their course of action. And so on one end, you've got um, the explanation provided by Mitch Daniels at Purdue University, um, who very early came out saying that um, Purdue plans to, to resume in-person instruction. Uh, and the rationale that he provided was that uh, at the time that he was writing, uh, he was operating under the assumption that the risk to traditional age students of contracting or become seriously ill from COVID-19 was relatively low, uh, and that students by and large wanted to return to campus. So with those two things in mind, he argued that uh, they have a responsibility to try to bring people back to campus and to not at least try would be to ignore that essential duty um, that he believes that, that he and, and by extension the university uh, has. Right. So from, from his perspective, it really kind of came down to um, students and students wanting to come back to campus and this understanding that COVID-19 um, for traditional age college students um, presents less risk. I think that particular argument has not aged well in even the short time period since it was written. You, I think we now have growing evidence that there is significant risk for young people. Um, we also, of course, have a number of people that have pointed out that college campuses are not just populated by 18 to 25 year old, um, very healthy young people. Um, even those traditional age students are, are frequently coming to campus with other conditions that I think um, increases risk for them, uh, but also that they're going to be transmitters of, of the illness and um, create significant risks for communities around colleges, for faculty and staff members. Um, so that, that particular argument in my mind is full of holes. Um, right, right. Wouldn't take too much scrutiny, I think, to um, reveal that as being now, in particular, just a, a, a bad rationale for bringing people back to campus. Right. So that's one of the explanations. Um, perhaps on the kind of the other end of the continuum, you've got um, the explanation for not coming back to, to campus or, or um, better put for, you know, staying largely online. Um, and so one of the people, one of the leaders that I've seen that have advocated persuasively for that position is Michael Sorrell from Paul Quinn College, um, who um, came out very strongly and said that 
um, many colleges were deluding themselves if they believed that they were going to be able to um, bring people back on campus and to do so without there being a vaccine yet. Um, knowing that COVID cases were increasing uh, and believing that they were going to be able to do all these things and truly mitigate the risk and, and keep people from falling ill. Um, and so one way that I distinguish those two positions, I think, um, is that I think Michael Sorrell is much more, is really framing his argument much more in terms of not only protecting our college, our immediate college community, but also taking seriously the role that we as a college play in the broader community, um, which is to say, I, I not only want to do my very best to keep my students um, and safe and, and kind of bring an ethic of care to my immediate community, but also think about how I can play a role in stopping the spread of COVID-19 beyond campus and in the United States and, and globally. Um, and I think when you start really thinking about that public responsibility, the, the role that colleges play in serving the public good, um, it becomes a lot harder to justify the decision to basically create a hotspot on your college campus. Yeah. And, and again, two very different universities. One is uh, uh, in the middle of Dallas, Texas, so it's an urban campus. The other in West Lafayette, Indiana, uh, kind of a rural area, one small, one large. So it's a very different um, area. One of the one you mentioned was uh, the uh, president at the University of Notre Dame, and Notre Dame traditionally carries a lot of weight in this. What was your takeaway take on that? So I think that the, the rationale, John Jenkins made, made the argument essentially that um, it is important for us to continue the education of young people because um, young people are going to play an incredibly important role in building the future, uh, that they are you know, the ones that we are going to rely upon, uh, and we can't just completely disrupt their education or, or hit the pause button. Uh, and so I think his was also in terms of, you know, how do we best serve students to make sure that we aren't disrupting their education uh, and um, but, but did have to some extent a societal lens in the sense that he was thinking about we're, we're going to need, you know, future problem solvers. And so we need to make sure that we're educating those students. So one, you know, similarity that I, I would make between um, Mitch Daniels and John Jenkins is that it is largely a student and I would argue traditional age student focus when they're thinking about why we ought to bring people back to campus. Um, and I would, I think we, we could again kind of ask some questions about who else is not being included in that decision making process or at least, you know, in, in what they've written publicly there is just not as much attention being paid to other individuals beyond that population who also have aspirations and plans for the future, including being alive. <laughs> Always a good thing to keep in mind. So you took a look at those committees and you noted who was not there. Do you think some of these outcomes might have been influenced by being more inclusive or the fact that some were missing who might have had important voices? <clears throat> So there were a couple things that troubled me about the committees that I saw. Um, and again, you, there is a fair amount of variation. Um, you've got some institutions I saw 
Um, for example, one that stands out was William and Mary, um, where I really felt like they did a good job of ensuring that there were different constituencies represented on the committees and various subcommittees. I felt that they did a good job of ensuring that there was medical expertise populated throughout those committees and subcommittees. That of course doesn't guarantee one outcome or another, but just in terms of representing voices across campus, um, I felt that they did a, a pretty good job. On the other hand, one of the things that troubled me was that I saw a lot of committees that were largely populated by upper level administrators, including people that I think were um, direct reports to the president or the provost, um, and not very many faculty members, um, certainly not very many students or graduate students, uh, and not a whole lot in the way of public health or medical expertise, at least as I could readily identify just looking at the, the committee makeup uh, online. And so part of the reason why that troubles me is, is it means that it's plausible that you've got on these task forces and committees a group of individuals that are perhaps not 100% comfortable challenging um, if there's a, a leader who says, I really think it's important that we do X or Y. So part of the value of having faculty on a committee is that we're a pain in the ass, um, <laughs> my language, but that's sometimes a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes want the voice of a tenured faculty member saying, hold on a second, I think that this is a bad idea. And I personally have been on committees where I am the only tenured faculty member who is willing to say to the, the chancellor, the, pre the president or the provost, hey, that's not accurate. We need to back up just a second right. because some of the other people in the room don't feel comfortable challenging like that. Um, and then the other thing that, again, that was very troubling to me is I think that it is absolutely essential that colleges and universities be making decisions uh, based on data, based on the best available evidence, based on expertise as academic institutions that are um, dedicated to the pursuit of science and truth. I think our credibility rests on decision-making processes that, that have a stronger basis than optimism or we think that this is the right way to go or this is what other institutions are doing. Um, and the absence of individuals that have that level of expertise um, worries me. Um, and it makes me wondering, makes me wonder, you know, what is the basis for the decisions that are being made? Um, and if you were to kind of take these ideas and actually put them in front of an expert panel, what would they say? Right. Would they say that, the, that, the, that this is able to hold water or not? I think those are really good questions. And I've, all, I've wondered them myself because I think that they can get into groupthink really easily in higher education, especially if you're reporting up to your boss. You want to echo sometimes what your boss is thinking and not what you think might be an alternative way of viewing it. But I do wonder, in all these months of planning and agonizing and reporting out and sending emails and more emails, to different folks on campus, if, at the, if in, at the end it just didn't come down to what's my peer institution going to do? What is, if you watch the dominoes in college sports, what is the Ivy League going to do? And then what is the Big Ten going to do? And what is the SEC and, and, and the Pac-12? And so does, doesn't it really just then come down to we'd start to look around and see what everybody else is doing? Yeah, there, I think there's certainly a, an element of that at play. And, and I want to, um, you know, temper what I'm saying a little bit in the sense that 
there are public universities, including my own, that are part of systems um, where it is very much the expectation that major decisions are informed by guidance coming from the system office and that rarely do universities within the system kind of radically diverge in terms of their approaches. And so in that sense, it would make, it, it's understandable that we might look to our peer institutions or sister institutions within our system and say, okay, how are we collectively approaching this? Um, but, you know, without going too far into the weeds here, anybody that's been on a, a committee within higher education that's tackling a complex problem can attest to the fact that, uh, you know, oftentimes people are doing these committees on top of their other work responsibilities. Um, they were attempting to come up with plans in the midst of this crazy work context that we're all in, where we're working from home and with children around us and, um, you know, dealing with some very complex health challenges in some cases. So, um, you know, this was not ideal circumstances for people, I think, to be working and collaborating. You know, all of these committees were meeting by Zoom, likely, and um, that doesn't, again, lend itself to um, perfect working conditions. And then if you think about how committees operate themselves, um, you know, it's sometimes the case that people don't have access to all the information that they need. They may not have had time to fully research in the way that they wanted to. Uh, and so under, again, all of those circumstances, in some ways it makes sense that they might've said, well, you know, this institution that we generally respect is doing it this way. Maybe that's the way that we ought to go too because we don't feel like we've got better answers or ways of defending other answers. And so we're gonna kind of go down this pathway. Um, so, you know, again, yes, I think it's certainly plausible that institutions were just looking at what others were doing, um, at least initially and making kind of their, their determinations. Um, and I think the, the complexity of the work conditions the imperfections around trying to, you know, complete tasks via committee and just the enormity of the challenge um, meant that there was a high probability that we were all going to be dissatisfied with the product at the end. Yeah, yeah. And that gets to your, the part of your title of your article, which is the why and explaining why you've decided to come back and maybe perhaps that process has just not created a compelling why. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. The other thing to keep in mind is, is we, we have to look at what the charge for the committees and task forces actually was. If it's the case that the committee of the task force was charged with figuring out ways of bringing people back to campus, then obviously the plans that they come up with are going to be focused on how do we bring people back to campus. Um, and so some committees may never have even been given the opportunity to consider alternatives. All along, their work may have been focused on how do we bring people back to campus and what, what, what are the protocol that we should put in place for that. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, you know, in terms of explaining why <laughs> leaders are not offering their own explanations, um, it could be the case that people have just simply not demanded it of them. Um, or at least the individuals that they report to in case, you know, in this case, trustees or boards may not have similarly asked them to explain publicly their decisions. Um, and so that could be part of the reason. It could also be the case that so many of them kind of 
decided at an early point that we were going to plan to bring people back or we're going to intend, you know, we intend, we aim, we plan to bring people back on campus. And so given that, um, they kind of focused more on the, okay, we have announced this, how do we make this happen now? Um, and so they were kind of too far down the road to then stop and say, okay, let me explain why we're doing this. Um, <laughs> the other reason, to be honest with you, that uh, I don't believe that they were necessarily offering too much in the way of explanations is that the explanations were bad. Yeah. Um, that they knew that they didn't have a justifiable position. Um, and, you know, they felt in some cases that there was a good chance that they were going to have to alter what they intended to do in any case. Yeah. Um, so if I'm a leader and I say, we announced from an early point that we were going to bring people back to campus because we knew that we needed the revenue um, and that we were getting pressure from politicians or parents and students, and I wrote that publicly and sent it out to faculty and staff, um, I, I could anticipate what the answer was going to be. Um, and, and I'm a thinking person and a human being, and I know that those justifications are just not good enough. And so rather than do that, they just said, you know what, we're going to kind of keep moving down and seeing if we can make this work with the understanding that there's a pretty good chance that conditions are going to change and we're not going to have to do it anyway. It feels like there's a lot of that. Um, you, you mentioned briefly the UMass Boston president and why you thought she had really done a good job of explaining the why. Yeah, so um, I, I appreciated the, the letter explaining, and, and so just for context, UMass Boston decided that they were going to go online in the fall. They make the point, which, which I think you have also underscored, which is that different institutions have different needs, they're serving different populations, they're located in different geographic areas, and, and so I want to recognize that as well. Um, but what this leader basically said was, we are an urban commuter campus. We've got large number of students that are relying on public transportation to come to campus every day, and then they leave, um, go back to their homes, then come back. Under these circumstances, we feel that there's just no plausible way of keeping people safe. Um, and, and what I appreciated is that I felt as though the decision um, grounded equity in the sense that the, the letter acknowledged the fact that COVID-19 um, has had disproportionate effects by race and income. So, um, you know, poorer people, people of color um, are bearing the brunt of this illness. Um, and so to open a campus with that understanding in some ways um, just continues or perpetuates inequities in society. Uh, and the, the letter also acknowledged that many of their students were living in multi-generational homes. And so they would be coming to campus on public transportation um, and then going back home where they're living with people who are older. Uh, and so they were, again, considering more than just students. They were considering um, what type of impact this is going to, what type of ripple effects yeah. it could have. Um, and so I, I just appreciated that, and, and I haven't seen enough of that. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking beyond this is what our institutional finances look like, um, or our students are really excited to come back, therefore we are moving forward with this. So in the UNC system, um, are all the schools division one in college athletics that play sports? I don't know, I can't imagine that's the case. Um, okay. I think, 
um, we definitely have some smaller institutions that aren't playing at the Division One level. Okay, but it's certainly Chapel Hill, Wilmington, Greensboro uh, are for sure. What role do you think the the need to keep those programs operating might be playing on the rest of the decisions the system has to make regarding the smaller campuses that don't play Division One sports? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, um, and and certainly you know a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, and you probably have more perspective on this than I do. Um, but um, what I will say is, um, you know, outside of Chapel Hill and NC State, maybe ECU and App State athletics um, probably plays a lesser role in you know at at, at many of the UNC institutions. Um, and, and it's certainly the case at our institution that our athletics department is not in a financially stable position um, and just recently had requested a fee increase um, as a way of, of trying to make it work. Um, you know, this comes as no shock to you, but based on my understanding, athletics is, is expensive and costs go up every single year in order to be competitive. Um, and if you're at an institution like ours without football, um, you know, ticket sales only go so far. There just aren't that many avenues of generating revenue. Um, so, you know, to be honest with you, I have not heard a great deal about athletics um, having a disproportionate influence over decision-making on my campus or within the UNC system. It doesn't mean it's not there um, or that pressure is not there, but um, it's not something that I'm hearing about in, in the same way that I'm hearing about it outside of North Carolina. Um, so at your school, it's not even, it's not much of an enrollment driver? Not particularly, no. Um, the, uh, and again, UNCW may be a, an outlier in this way, but athletics just is, is a very small part of our campus culture. Um, again, part of that could be that, you know, we've not, we've never had a football team. And so, you know, that particular aspect of the college experience was never part of, of right. how we operate. Right. Um, but, you know, there are people that will point to the fact that, you know, it, it's important for attracting students and having a campus culture and, and you know, school spirit. Um, but um, we benefit from being a coastal university that's a stone's throw from the beach. And so I think we have other things that draw students outside of athletics that maybe are more important in some cases. Um, so. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So to kind of bring it to a close, one of your areas that you have really, you know, focused on is finance. And uh, Inside Higher Education just posted a survey, the results of a survey from the CUBO, the National Association of College and University Business Officers. And, and there were, as I read through the, the summary, I noticed some odd things in there, and I'm wondering if they're the same things that you noticed, which was, it seemed like the business officers thought everything was just okay, and not they weren't screaming as much as I've heard some other people scream. What was your takeaway? Well, um, I think people respond to surveys very much based on their the present circumstances. And one of my interpretations is that um, business officers were, perhaps surprised by the fact that we are likely in the midst of one of the greatest financial challenges that institutions have faced in a very, very long time. Um, and yet, you know, the whole world hasn't ended. 
Um, institutions are not crumbling. Um, we're not seeing kind of a mass closure event at this point. So it's possible that they say, you know, this is as bad as it is ever going to get um, and we're still standing. And so maybe that gives you some sort of confidence about how things look in the long term. If we are able to survive this and get on the other side of it, and, and maybe right now for many of them, they're looking at things and they say, you know, it's not going to be pretty, but we will survive this. Then it says, okay, we have some confidence that on the other, you know, that, that 10 years from now, we're still going to be here. Um, so what's interesting is, yeah, confidence 10 years out was stronger than near-term confidence, which it maybe makes sense that they're expecting that for the next few years, things are going to be really rocky. Um, but after this, we'll be okay. The other interpretation is that they say, this is an event that's gonna precipitate some really important changes. Um, again, these are not necessarily always gonna be positive changes. You know, I always try to underscore, anytime we're talking about cuts within higher education, we're not talking always in the abstracts, we're talking about people losing their livelihoods. Um, and those are certainly gonna be difficult, um, but this could be the event that forces changes that maybe we have needed to make and it will make us stronger financially or, or leaner, you know, uh, in terms of our operations so that in the future we're in a better place. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of uh, discussion about <clears throat> how many colleges will survive this and how, how many won't. And it's certainly a, an interesting tipping point. Kevin, I really want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me today on the podcast. It's been fascinating to listen to, how schools have talked about the reopening plans, because I think that's important messaging around what they think might happen in the fall and also what they think might happen for the rest of the academic year. Thank you very much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely.